In part one of this series on the rise and fall of the Comintern, we looked at the early years of the Communist International, got to know Grigory Zinoviev and his bureaucratic methods, and saw how he invented the idea of Trotskyism, counterposing it to Leninism, as a way of jockeying for power against Trotsky after Lenin's death. Behind all this was someone truly sinister, someone who was quietly moving pawns around from the shadows, preparing the ground for his own ascent to near-absolute power and the eventual destruction of the Comintern, Joseph Stalin. America will never be a socialist country. Attitudes are changing towards socialism. We believe... The only solution is the establishment of a workers' government on a socialist program. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Socialist Revolution podcast. My name is John Peterson. I'm the executive editor of Socialist Revolution magazine. You can visit our website at www.socialistrevolution.org. Every episode, we feature contributions and discussions on current events, history, and theory from a Marxist class struggle perspective, featuring revolutionary socialists from around the country and around the world. As we've seen, Zinoviev was incorrigibly indecisive, a function of his petty bourgeois outlook. Stalin, on the other hand, according to Trotsky himself, was, quote, gifted with practicality, a strong will, and persistence in carrying out his aims. His political horizon is restricted, his theoretical equipment primitive, his mind is stubbornly empirical and devoid of creative imagination. To the leading group of the party, he always seemed a man destined to play second and third fiddle. Nonetheless, due to his character and experience, his connections and ambitions, Stalin embodied the bureaucratic counter-revolution in a way Zinoviev couldn't possibly match. As Trotsky again explained, in Stalin, each Soviet bureaucrat easily finds himself. But Stalin also finds in each one a small part of his own spirit. Stalin is the personification of the bureaucracy. That is the substance of his political personality. By the 14th Party Congress, Zinoviev and Kamenev had been outmaneuvered by the single-minded ruthlessness of their one-time ally. Zinoviev was removed from the Politburo in July 1926. He now had a base only in the Leningrad Party and the Comintern, and soon even those were pulled out from under him by Stalin, as the office of the Comintern chairman was abolished and Zinoviev was dismissed from all regional posts. On the 10th anniversary of the October Revolution in November 1927, the left opposition, the grouping led by Trotsky, organized demonstrations against the bureaucracy, which were broken up by force. On November 12th, Trotsky, Zinoviev, and other old Bolsheviks were expelled from the Communist Party altogether. Many, including Trotsky, were sent into internal exile in places like Kazakhstan and Siberia. So although Zinoviev paled when compared to Trotsky, he positively shone when compared to Stalin. By vying for power against Stalin, someone who never forgave and never forgot, Zinoviev had sealed his fate. Zinoviev knew Stalin's methods up close due to their work together in the first Troika. Stalin couldn't leave someone with this intimate knowledge on the loose, and he set out to have him thoroughly demonized and discredited. He used Zinoviev's own methods against him, carried out with exceptionally cold and calculating cruelty. 
In the end, Zinoviev was a useful idiot for the sociopath Stalin as he meticulously gathered the reins of power from behind the scenes, presenting himself as a moderate in public while skillfully balancing between all factions, layers, and classes. Only Trotsky stood firm in his ideas and actions. True to their weak and vacillating characters, Zinoviev and Kamenev eventually capitulated and ran back into Stalin's loving arms. They were reaccepted into the party and given mid-level positions, but they were never again on the Central Committee. They vegetated on the sidelines until October 1932, when they were again expelled from the party for not actively exposing oppositionists. They were readmitted yet again in December 1933 in total humiliation, making self-flagellating speeches as Stalin basked in their downfall and disgrace. In December 1934, Zinoviev was expelled for the last time and arrested. He was tried in 1935 and found guilty of moral complicity in the murder of Sergei Kirov, a blatant Stalinist frame-up. He was sentenced to 10 years in prison. Then, in August 1936, the infamous show trials began. In the trial of 16, Zinoviev was charged with forming a terrorist organization, of killing Kirov, of plotting to murder Stalin, and other such monstrosities. He was alleged to be one of the leaders of a so-called Trotskyite Zinovievite terrorist center. Zinoviev and Kamenev agreed to plead guilty if they would not be killed. Stalin allegedly told them that it goes without saying they wouldn't be killed. But on August 25, 1936, within 24 hours of their conviction, he had them both executed. As they were being led to their deaths, Zinoviev was allegedly howling and crying and fighting the guards. Kamenev yelled at him, Quiet down and have some dignity. As an old Bolshevik, Zinoviev would always be a threat and had to be eliminated. He could not simply be absorbed into the Stalinist apparatus once it was fully formed and consolidated. Along with hundreds of others who knew the real story of the early days of the Russian Revolution, he had to be physically exterminated. In 1988, under Perestroika, the Soviet government formally absolved Zinoviev and company of the absurd charges that had led to their death sentences. Needless to say, by then, it was too little, too late. So yeah, that was Zinoviev, the first president of the Comintern. So how did things go so wrong so fast? Zinovievism was not yet full-blown Stalinism, but it certainly helped pave the way. Since he lacked an all-sided understanding of the problems of the world revolution, Zinoviev supported the expansion of the Russian party bureaucracy, with himself at the core, as a way of countering the rising power of the state bureaucracy. However, here too it was shown that organizational maneuvers and measures cannot reverse the elemental tides of revolution and counter-revolution. In the final analysis, only the world revolution could solve the problems of isolation, backwardness, and bureaucracy. And victory on that front required bold, class-independent, revolutionary, and internationalist policies. Unfortunately, that's not what Zinoviev and those around him offered. Now, since Zinoviev had been Lenin's longtime collaborator and stood at the head of the Comintern, the glow of the Russian Revolution shone directly on him. This gave him credibility and authority far beyond his capabilities and political level. People naturally looked to him for guidance and leadership, both theoretical and practical. The real problem is that Zinoviev actually believed he could match Lenin's genius, and he made a dog's dinner of everything. The Comintern was conceived as the premier tool for spreading the World Socialist Revolution from its base in backward Russia. But now it was being rapidly transformed into a border guard for the rising Stalinist bureaucracy, the first line of defense for its narrow nationalist foreign policy. 
In conjunction with the grave errors of the leadership, profound social processes ultimately drove the degeneration of both the USSR and the Comintern. The relative and temporary stabilization of world capitalism after the post-World War I revolutionary wave increased the isolation and pressure on the young Soviet Republic and postponed the World Revolution. There was a massive boom in the US, for example, known as the Roaring Twenties. The stress, strain, and death of a decade of war, revolution, and counter-revolution had taken its toll, and the leaden rump of the bureaucracy weighed down on the masses. Dialectically, the revolutionary wave, full of momentum and boundless potential, turned into its opposite. Thousands of sworn enemies of Bolshevism flooded into the Soviet government in search of riches and prestige. The Comintern was likewise infested by careerist yes-men and women with no interest whatsoever in world revolution and who were in fact actively working against it. Anti-communists not only influenced Comintern policy from behind the scenes, but even rose to positions of leadership. For example, Martinov, a former leader of the Mensheviks, who in 1917 opposed any radical measures so as, quote, not to frighten the bourgeoisie. This arch-petty bourgeois reformist energetically supported Stalin against Trotsky because he astutely recognized that Trotsky represented genuine Bolshevism, whereas Stalin's policy opened the path to eventual capitalist restoration. It was the Menshevik Martinov who came up with the so-called Block of Four Classes, which was embraced wholeheartedly by Stalin. This was the Popular Front, a class collaborationist block between the workers, the peasants, the urban petty bourgeois, and the so-called progressive bourgeoisie. In practice, this means subordinating the interests of the workers and the poor peasants to the big landlords, capitalists, and imperialists. In China, this led directly to Chiang Kai-shek's coup d'etat and the massacre of the flower of the Chinese proletariat in Shanghai in April 1927. In short, the subjective crisis of leadership of the world working class became an objective factor in capitalism's stabilization for an entire historical period. Now, the IMT celebrates and bases itself on the proceedings of the first four congresses of the Comintern. The written record of those meetings is a treasure trove of Marxist theory and internationalist working class politics. Despite Lenin's prolonged illness, he and Trotsky's confidence in the world proletariat and the socialist future burns brightly in every one of their speeches and resolutions. But by the eve of his death, Lenin was keenly aware of the problems plaguing the new workers' state and of Stalin's pernicious role. In works such as Better Fewer But Better, Lenin launched an all-out attack on the growing bureaucracy and the poison of national chauvinism that was already creeping in. All of this, ultimately, was a reflection of the backwardness and alien class pressures bearing down on the Soviet state and its administrative apparatus. As Lenin put it, our state apparatus is so deplorable, not to say wretched, that we must first think very carefully how to combat its defects, bearing in mind that these defects are rooted in the past which, although it has been overthrown, has not yet been overcome. Within weeks of Lenin's death on January 21, 1924, the counter-revolutionary momentum had accelerated dramatically. The 5th Congress of the Comintern, held in June and July of 1924, was in many ways Zinoviev's Congress. In the discussions on world perspectives, for example, his speeches account for over half of the 120 pages of official minutes. Although some dissent was still possible at this Congress, for example, some protests took place against people being expelled for so-called Trotskyism, the proceedings were already heavily stage-managed. Zinoviev personally led the charge against the right danger of Trotskyism. He called Trotsky a petty bourgeois, an opportunist, and so on. Perhaps most infamously, however, this was the Congress that launched the so-called Bolshevization campaign across the international. 
While this may sound superficially radical, it was in fact the complete caricature of genuine Bolshevism. Instead of working patiently to help the national sections improve their work through political debate and experience, which is what Lenin and Trotsky did, Bolshevization used the Comintern as a battering ram to shore up the position of the Troika of Zinoviev, Kamenev, and Stalin. The crude aim of all of this was to make all communist parties subservient to the Russian party, the only true Bolshevik party, the one party to rule them all. The Russian Bolshevik party had been forged and tempered in the fires of revolution and counter-revolution through a process of intense democratic debate over a period of two decades. Bolshevization was a clumsy, mechanical bureaucratic search for a non-existent shortcut that could mold the raw communist parties of the world into Bolsheviks overnight. The result was a poisoned and deformed travesty. So-called Bolshevization resulted in political leaders who knew only how to follow orders blindly and how to charge forward, and they were soon smashed to bits in the choppy waters of the class struggle in the interwar period. This campaign dovetailed perfectly with the utterly anti-Leninist theory of socialism in one country. This was the undialectical idea that communism could be fully realized within the limits of the Soviet Union. As a result, the USSR was to be defended by any means and maneuvers necessary, even at the expense of revolutions in more advanced countries and of the world revolution itself. So the Fifth Congress served as a bridge between Lenin and Trotsky's Comintern and Stalin's Comintern, with its theory of socialism in one country, the madness of the Third Period, and eventually the Popular Front. By 1926, Stalin could write the following vomit-inducing lines in an article called On the Issues of Leninism. Quote, an internationalist is one who is ready to defend the USSR without reservation, without wavering, unconditionally, for the USSR is the base of the world revolutionary movement, and this revolutionary movement cannot be defended and promoted without defending the USSR. End quote. Only reactionary conclusions could flow from this. As Trotsky explained in his later critique of the draft program of the Sixth Congress, if socialism can be realized within the national boundaries of backward Russia, then there is all the more reason to believe that it can be realized in advanced Germany. Tomorrow, the leaders of the Communist Party of Germany will undertake to propound this theory. The draft program empowers them to do so. The day after tomorrow, the French party will have its turn. It will be the beginning of the disintegration of the Comintern along the lines of social patriotism. The Russians had always enjoyed great authority within the Comintern, authority earned through their clear political arguments, experience, and the example of having won and held power. Now, authority was to be imposed from above. Orders were to be issued and followed automatically, no matter how incorrect or absurd. I think this is a good time to take up the question of the one-party state. As we'll see, the Russians ended up in this situation only due to a series of unfortunate and very difficult convergences. The 10th Congress of the Bolshevik Party had been held in 1921, in the midst of war communism and civil war, mass starvation, the Kronstadt uprising, imperialist invasion, and after a bitter and divisive struggle over the role of the trade unions in the transitional society, which was fought out between seven different factions. In these conditions, in an attempt to avoid a destructive split, a temporary ban on factions within the party was agreed. This was due to extreme contingent factors and the urgent need to maintain party unity or risk unraveling the revolution altogether. It was never considered a matter of principle. A healthy revolutionary organization is a living and dynamic organism. 
The flow of ideas, information, political clarification, and the raising of the level must be continuous. As conditions changed and the revolution stabilized, the temporary ban would have surely been reversed, returning to the norms enjoyed in the party since it was founded. However, what was stabilized in the end was not the revolution, but the counter-revolution and the bureaucracy, due to the failed revolutions in the West. Fast forward a few years and out of expedience, because giving commands is less time-consuming than winning people over through political arguments, if you can even win those arguments in the first place, Zinoviev imposed the temporary ban on factions in the Russian party onto the entire Comintern. This rapidly turned into a de facto ban on raising any differences whatsoever. Previous to this, political minorities had traditionally been given at least some representation on the elected bodies, and they could continue to defend their views as long as they agreed to work loyally on implementing majority decisions. Now, they were to be excluded altogether from the national and international leadership. The party was to be monolithic from top to bottom, a bureaucratically centralized, homogeneous Bolshevik world party permitting no factions, tendencies, or groups. This was now considered a question of principle. In practice, this meant that the membership was deprived of the right to elect and control the leadership. Internal votes became rigged stage shows and no longer reflected the genuine will of the membership, whether the membership was right or wrong. So there's a world of difference between democratic centralism and the bureaucratic centralism of Zinoviev and Stalin. To be clear, Marxists are not in favor of factions at any and all times under any and all conditions. They can be abused and misused to paralyze the work. However, allowing them as temporary tools to clarify specific questions is sometimes necessary to achieve full clarity and to move things forward. Fusions and splits are also a natural and necessary part of the process of welding together a world revolutionary party. But a healthy revolutionary tendency must never use expulsions or bureaucratic exclusions to resolve political differences and must seek to exhaust all political channels before resorting to a split. Zinoviev made replacing people from above, expulsions and splits, the primary method for resolving political differences. Loyalty to Moscow, or the head of a de facto faction, was the new litmus test for leadership, not revolutionary competency. Political purges were carried out under the guise of Bolshevism. This destructive method has absolutely nothing in common with Lenin, and yet it is presented as the purest form of Leninism by the Stalinists, Maoists, anarchists, and of course the bourgeois. The Troika's authority was to be above question and infallible. To achieve this, Lenin's authority had to be hijacked and Trotsky's authority destroyed, especially in key countries like Germany and France. When revolutions failed due to the Troika's policies, or when their perspectives were blatantly falsified, instead of drawing the lessons, admitting to and learning from his mistakes, Zinoviev doubled down on his position and blamed others. This badly miseducated the members of the International. The revolutionary leadership of the world proletariat was decapitated precisely when enormous opportunities were on the horizon. As Trotsky wrote, this approach doomed the young sections of the Comintern to degeneration before they had had time to grow and develop. Zinoviev made especially grievous errors when it came to the timing of both revolutionary upsurges and ebbs. For example, the harebrained ultra-left March action in 1921 in Germany led to a bloody defeat, the resignation of 200,000 members, and the isolation of the German Communist Party from the working class. To cover for his own mistake, Zinoviev declared to the KPD leaders, the Communist International says to you, you acted rightly. 
Then, after the even more disastrous failure of the 1923 German Revolution, Zinoviev chose instead to scapegoat the leadership of the German party. Trotsky refused to blame the Germans and instead placed the onus squarely where it belonged, with Zinoviev and Stalin. At the height of the revolution, when what was needed was an inspirational push to urge the German workers to seize power, Zinoviev and Stalin's indecision and hesitation wrecked the revolution. Instead of seizing on the explosive initiative of the masses, they told the German leadership to go slow. As Stalin put it, in my opinion, the Germans must be curbed and not spurred on. They mockingly considered Trotsky's urgent call for the German workers to organize an insurrection as fanciful. This was a missed opportunity of epic proportions. The Russians' best hope for a reprieve from isolation and backwardness was dashed, and the stage was set for the eventual rise of Hitler. It's not an accident that Zinoviev and Stalin had the same position in October 1917 on the eve of the uprising that brought the Bolsheviks to power. They vacillated and hesitated, and although Zinoviev did so openly, while Stalin hedged his bets in the shadows, they basically had the same position. After the German defeat in 1923, Zinoviev didn't take responsibility despite standing at the head of the Comintern. He and the rest of the Troika had overestimated the revolutionary ripeness in Germany in March of 1921 and underestimated the depth of the defeat in 1923. To cover for their fatal miscalculations, they resorted to bravado and aggression instead of dialectically understanding what had really happened. With Lenin incapacitated, they used smoke and mirrors to find anyone to scapegoat but themselves. And who do you think they pointed the finger at? You guessed it. Trotsky was suddenly discovered to be the source of right-wing opportunism in the common turn. So the failed German Revolution of 1923 was a turning point. It inaugurated a new post-Leninist phase of development of the common turn. Lenin and Trotsky had done what they could to correct these mistakes at the Comintern's third and fourth congresses, but unfortunately, they only had limited success in convincing the ultra-lefts. Bukharin and Zinoviev's theory of the offensive, which had led to disaster in 1921, had been rejected by the third congress in favor of the policy of the United Front. As explained in the theses on this question from the Fourth Congress in 1922, the United Front tactic is simply an initiative whereby the communists propose to join with all workers belonging to other parties and groups and all unaligned workers in a common struggle to defend the immediate basic interests of the working class against the bourgeoisie. In other words, the communists should march separately but strike together with other workers' organizations, uniting on a principled basis around specific questions against the common enemy, while scrupulously maintaining class and organizational independence. At the time, Zinoviev and Bukharin had opposed the United Front and said that Lenin had been mistaken on this question. They said he'd been influenced by the conservatism of the German communist Paul Levy. In practice, therefore, although the United Front was the official policy after the Third and Fourth Congresses, it was resisted and never implemented by many sections of the Comintern. Instead, they embraced the infantile romanticism of the theory of the offensive, which was revived in a new guise at the Fifth Congress. Some experienced skaters like Karl Radek and Clara Zetkin tried to defend the Leninist view, but they were defeated as Zinoviev redefined the United Front as something that is formed on the basis of individual workers getting together from below and not as an agreement between mass workers' organizations. The ultra-lefts, people like Fischer and Maslow, actually blamed the United Front policy for the defeat in 1923 in Germany, arguing that the German CP had been weakened by its years of collaboration with the Socialist Party. 
But that's just absurd. In reality, the error had been in not implementing the united front decisively enough. And as the cherry on top, or rather, as a nail in the Comintern's coffin, the 5th Congress approved a resolution stating that ultra-imperialism could somehow do away with imperialist war. This was a scandalous reversal on Lenin's views on imperialism and on war, and of Zinoviev's position himself when he co-authored Socialism and War with Lenin. The 5th Congress, therefore, represented a total negation of the policies fought for and won by Lenin and Trotsky at the 3rd and 4th Congresses, and a direct repudiation of Lenin's writings on the infantile disorder of ultra-leftism. As incredible as it may seem, all of these mistakes were carried out in the name of Bolshevism. No wonder there's so much confusion out there as to what genuine Leninism, Trotskyism, and Bolshevism really are. Needless to say, the stage was set for the ruin of the Comintern as a revolutionary international. As Trotsky explained in 1928, the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, the CPSU, has the greatest wealth of experience in the domain of ideology and revolution. But as the last five years showed, even the CPSU has been unable to live with impunity for a single day on the interest of its capital alone, but is obliged to renew and expand it constantly, and this is possible only through a collective working of the party mind. And what then need be say of the communist parties in other countries which were formed a few years ago and are just passing through the initial stage of accumulating theoretical knowledge and practical ability? Without a real freedom of party life, freedom of discussion, and freedom of establishing their course collectively, and by means of groupings, these parties will never become a decisive revolutionary force. It seems that Zinoviev really believed that the raw weight, momentum, and authority of the Russians and their victorious revolution, combined with orders from above, would be enough to guarantee worldwide victory, almost automatically. But the class struggle is far more complicated than that. Once capitalism re-established a certain stability in the early 1920s, Zinoviev and co. were exposed as out of their depth, and there were real and tragic consequences for their mistakes. These people were eclectic and impressionistic and did not understand dialectics. They were also infected with impatience, which is the bane of revolutionaries. Marxists must have a long view of history. Zinoviev and his co-conspirators were looking for a magic key and didn't have the theoretical level to cope with the changed situation. So they turned increasingly to bureaucratic methods and commandism. The Bolshevization campaign also meant the Russification of the national parties, the forcible reorganization of the internal life of all the national sections of the Comintern, bureaucratically, from above, with all dissenters being unceremoniously driven out. Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of comrades around the world trusted the Russians and the Comintern to provide objective and balanced political advice, not advice based on factional interests and petty personal considerations, and this led to disaster in one country after another. Unprincipled maneuvers replaced political debate. Mindless careerists and bureaucrats were favored over talented individuals who may have made some minor mistakes or who thought independently. Bukharin leaned on the same methods after he succeeded Zinoviev as head of the Comintern between 1926 and 1929. He too was a rigid, mechanical thinker. The Bulgarian communist leader, Georgi Dimitrov, who had an even more crude political level, eventually took over the Comintern in 1934. He presided over it until its dissolution a decade later, further perfecting the use of these methods under the direct tutelage of Stalin. By the 6th Congress, held in 1928, Stalin had the upper hand. The Congress failed to correct the mistakes of the 5th Congress, and in the aftermath of the failed Chinese Revolution, it launched the so-called Third Period, which was to last until 1935. 
Following on what they called the first revolutionary period after the October victory, and the so-called second period of capitalist stabilization, the third period undialectically and mechanically proclaimed that the capitalist system was in its period of final and imminent collapse. All communist parties were to adopt a stridently ultra-left line in another perverse variant of the theory of the offensive. All non-communist parties, including the socialist parties, were alleged to be social fascists, not only was it impermissible for communists to work with the reformist left, they should actively work to smash it, physically. Never mind that millions of ordinary workers were still under the influence of the social democracy. These consistent zigzags demoralized and wrecked the Comintern as a revolutionary international. Let's take a look at a few concrete examples of this. Outside of Russia, Germany had the most influential communist party and was the most important country for extending the world revolution. Revolution and counter-revolution raged there from 1918 on, and in 1923, a severe economic crisis and the military occupation of the Ruhr Valley by French imperialism sparked yet another revolutionary upsurge. However, disoriented by the murders of Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Liebknecht, the opportunism and expulsion of Paul Levy, and the ultra-leftism of Fischer and Maslow, the German Communist Party leadership, now under Brandler and Thalheimer, was in over its head and needed clear and decisive guidance. But at least they recognized this, and they asked Moscow to send Trotsky himself to help coordinate the revolution. Of course, for factional reasons, this was refused. Instead, Stalin, Kamenev, and Zinoviev gave the fateful advice to go slow. Although they weren't consciously trying to sabotage the revolution at that time, they couldn't offer a consistently revolutionary alternative because they weren't genuine Marxists. Zinoviev and Kamenev's vacillation and Stalin's embrace of the Menshevik two-stage theory doomed the German revolution and many others. As explained earlier in this episode, they told the Germans to hold off on the seizure of power. As a result, the revolutionary moment was lost, the movement fizzled, and the workers were crushed. Russia's fate was all but sealed. The blame lay with Zinoviev, the executive committee of the Communist International, and the Russian Politburo, and everybody in the leadership knew it. But as we've seen, the Troika were experts in intrigues and prestige politics. They succeeded in deflecting the blame to Trotsky, Karl Radek, and the Germans. A vicious campaign of lies and slanders was unleashed to wipe out any support for Trotsky in Germany. Brandler was removed and replaced by Fischer, Maslow, and Urbans, ultra-lefts who had opposed the United Front tactic at the Third and Fourth Congresses and who thought that Lenin and Trotsky were right-wing opportunists. They rooted out anyone vaguely sympathetic to Trotsky and moved resolutions for Trotsky's expulsion from the Communist International. After they had done Moscow's dirty work, an even more subservient leadership was installed under Ernst Telman, who deepened the anti-Trotskyist campaign. To make matters even worse, Zinoviev also invented Luxembourgism to undermine her memory and authority. As with Trotsky, they exaggerated her differences with Lenin and dragged her contribution to revolutionary Marxism through the mud. However, the authority of Rosa and Trotsky was not so easy to bury. It took several years to achieve but the German party was eventually wrecked as a tool for revolution. As for France, it was the first experiment in anti-Trotskyist Bolshevization. Trotsky had a lot of authority and connections there, and this had to be undermined. To achieve this, as elsewhere, the Communist Party leadership was installed from above, people with little experience who had not fought through the tough times of the war and the struggle against the social democracy. The French Communist Party, which had once been self-financed, became dependent on subsidies from Moscow, a key lever for wresting control of the national parties from the rank and file. Incompetent fools like Trin were propped up by Moscow for towing the line. 
Trent accused Trotsky and the left opposition of being petty bourgeois Mensheviks, opportunist rightists who had sabotaged the German Revolution. In fact, the first use of the term Bolshevization appears to have been in an article by Trin in March 1924. As he put it, homogeneous ideology, homogeneous policies, homogeneous structure, homogeneous leadership. It should be clear by now that that has nothing to do with Bolshevism. Trin embraced the theory of social fascism and invented the phrase anarcho-fascism, lumping anarchists as well as social democrats in with the fascists. He declared that fascism was already in power since, according to him, bourgeois democracy and fascism were one and the same. In less than two years, the French party was also destroyed as a political tool for the French Socialist Revolution. As could be expected, Trent's reward for all this was to be expelled along with the Zinovievites of the United Left Opposition in 1927. As we'll see in the next and final episode of this series, the situation in the U.S. was equally atrocious and ruined the CP as a force for the Third American Revolution. But I think that's enough cringy disasters and failed revolutions for now. The aim of all this, of course, isn't to depress anyone, but to help us draw the necessary lessons for building a healthy revolutionary international today. With that in mind, there's a lot of useful and interesting stuff yet to come in the next episode. Thank you so much for listening. Big thanks as always to Laura Brown, our audiovisual producer whose hard work behind the scenes makes these episodes possible. If you liked what you heard today, please share, subscribe, and give us a five-star rating which will help other listeners find us. Or consider making a donation to the International Marxist Tendency or subscribing to Socialist Revolution magazine. Better yet, why not join the IMT and bring these ideas to your family, friends, neighbors, and co-workers. You can learn more about the IMT and about getting involved at socialistrevolution.org. Stay healthy and safe and keep fighting the good fight, the fight for socialism in our lifetime. <laughs>